You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with the sermon this afternoon, which will be on Lord's Day 7, specifically about the matter of faith, let's read together from 1 Corinthians 15, the verses 1 through 19. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared also to me, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God and that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised Your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Our text this afternoon is the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Are all men then saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? No, only those are saved who by a true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his benefits. What is true faith? True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins everlasting righteousness and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. What then must a Christian believe? All that is promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teach us in a summary. What are these articles? And then follows the articles of the Apostles' Creed as we sang them earlier in the service. Brothers and sisters whom our Lord Jesus Christ loves, in the aftermath 
of that earthquake in Haiti, as I watched and read various reports on CNN and other news outlets, I repeatedly heard, and maybe you heard the same thing, a common refrain pointing to the faith of the Haitian people. Reporter after reporter, news anchor after news anchor spoke of how in the face of disaster, many Haitians were turning to their faith. We heard the talking heads speak about the power of faith and how it was really important for people to to turn to their faith in a time of disaster, in a time of crisis, and how this would help them through their difficult time. But the reporters and the news anchors and the talking heads have it all wrong. Turning to your faith in a time of crisis is like chewing on your hand when you're hungry. It's not going to help you. And I imagine that many Haitians were in fact not turning to their faith for help, just like they weren't chewing on their hands for food. But rather, just like they went to the place of food distribution to get what they needed for their stomachs, so they went to God for their help. Not to their faith, but to their God. By faith, they were trusting in God. Just like with their hands, they were grabbing hold of that food that they needed for nourishment. Faith is not a state of mind that helps protect us from difficulties. Faith is knowing and trusting in God for salvation. Faith is not our Savior. Jesus Christ is our Savior. True faith is faith in Jesus Christ. And that's our theme this afternoon. Faith is faith in Jesus Christ. We'll see, we'll look at what's been revealed about Jesus Christ. We'll see that it's faith in what has been accomplished by Jesus Christ and faith in what has been promised in Jesus Christ. So first of all then, faith is faith in Jesus Christ that is in what has been revealed about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And to get to that, let's start with the first statement in question and answer 21. We're going to return to the part about how salvation is by faith alone. Of course we will. That's the heart of the matter. But first, let's look at question and answer 21. Notice here that in answer to what is true faith, there are two aspects that are given. Sure knowledge, and it's a firm confidence. And a superficial look at these two things might reveal to you that there are two elements of faith. There's the the head knowledge, and there's the heart part, firm confidence. But that's not really the case. What the catechism is emphasizing when it talks about sure knowledge is exactly the idea that faith is not only a matter of the head, not only a matter of the brain, but also of the heart. And that matter of of the brain and heart has to do with what's revealed about Jesus Christ. By faith, the Holy Spirit works in my heart so that I not only know what the Bible says, but that I'm convinced 
and convicted of it. That's what a sure knowledge is. It's a knowledge and conviction in God's revelation that it's true. Now, in some parts, sometimes in history, it might have been necessary that you had to convince people of that truth. That, that faith was not only head knowledge, but also heart knowledge. But I think today, we live in a time in which people are more susceptible to think that heart knowledge is all that's important, and we don't really need the head part. I know that the Bible's true. Of course I believe that. But I don't have to know everything that's in here. Why bother? I can just look it up. We're likely to put heart knowledge above head knowledge. But just like we shouldn't put head knowledge above heart knowledge, neither should we put heart knowledge above head knowledge. They belong together. In fact, you can't divide them. Knowing promotes... Knowing in our head promotes knowing in our heart. And heart knowledge promotes head knowledge. They belong together. So, if faith is faith in Jesus Christ, as we hope to see in this sermon, why are we talking about the Scriptures and all of Scriptures at that? Can I just selectively believe a few things about what God has revealed, about who Jesus Christ is, and won't that be enough for me? Maybe I can pick the first four Gospels so that I know about His life. The book of Romans to shore up my doctrine. James to inspire me to active obedience and revelation so that I know what to expect in the future. And just leave all the rest. That seems too much for me to really know. Can we do that with the Bible? Not at all. Not at all. God's revelation is critical. And all of it is absolutely necessary. In order to have a knowledge and conviction of the Lord Jesus Christ, I have to have a convincing knowledge of the source, of everything I know about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's Scripture. That's where we learn who Jesus is and what He's done. And in order to have a knowledge and conviction of the Lord Jesus Christ, I have to have a knowledge and conviction of the whole Scripture. That's what the Catechism says, I accept as true all that God has revealed in His Word. We need to do that in order to understand what He has done. We can't be selective, and why would we want to be? Because God has given us this whole book to reveal the fullness of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And not only that, but also to see and to praise God for His faithfulness in giving Jesus Christ. For example, if if we were to just take the New Testament and remove the Old Testament, we would rob God of His honor. Because we wouldn't appreciate His faithfulness in bringing the Savior. In order to trust in what Christ has done for us, we need to see the countless failures and faults of God's people and God's invincible grace and patience with those same people. We also need to keep in mind the whole of Scripture in order to ward off heresies and mistakes and false ideas and 
false applications of God's Word. We have to keep it all together. Imagine a Bible without the book of Genesis, for example. We wouldn't know anything about the covenant of, with Noah. We would know very little about the covenant with Abraham. We would understand far less about God's sovereign call to His people, just like He called Abraham out of Ur. We'd be missing out on a whole lot of other things as well if we were to remove the book of Genesis from our Bible. And of course, that's obvious. But imagine a Bible without, say, the first five chapters of Genesis. Unfortunately, this is what many people have been doing and are still doing in, in the world of even Christian theology, literature. They're trying to pass off the first 11 or so chapters as ancient myth or prehistory. But consider this for a moment. Outside of Genesis 1 through 5, Adam, the first human being whom the Lord created, is mentioned only twice in the whole Old Testament. He's mentioned once in a genealogy in First Chronicles 1, and he's mentioned once again in Hosea 6, verse 7, where it might be a reference to him, it might also be a reference to a town in Israel. So without Genesis 1, verse 5, we would have hardly a clue about who Adam is. And we would have no idea about what Paul is talking about in, in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 about how Christ is the new Adam. About how the whole human race shares in the corruption of Adam. We wouldn't understand where we are today. And we would hardly understand what Christ has done. Certainly not in its depth. Or another example from Genesis 1 verse 5. What would we know about marriage? if we didn't have the first five chapters of Genesis, that God, that man was was not good for man to be alone, and that God made a helper fit for him, and that man is supposed to leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, all that we would not know. We need the whole of Scriptures. Indeed, God has given us the whole of Scriptures. And not only do we have to take, see the whole of Scriptures, in order to have a sure knowledge of Jesus Christ, we have to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Scriptures. You see that the, the Bible, the Scriptures, they point past themselves to the eternal life that Jesus has won for us. He speaks to the Jews in John 5, verse 39. He says, You diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. We must hold not only the scriptures, but Jesus Christ as the one to whom they're pointing to. And we can only understand what Christ has done if we have all of scripture. Think of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They were confused and upset about what had happened to Jesus. And when our Lord meet them on, met them on the road, how did He explain what had happened in His death and resurrection? He pointed them to the Scriptures. Luke 24, verse 27, And beginning with Moses 
and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And not only do they all point to scriptures, the scriptures uh, point to our Lord Jesus Christ. The scriptures show us what is the heart of the work of our Lord. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, we read it together. What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. It's in the Bible that the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to us. It's by growing in conviction and knowledge of the Bible that we grow in conviction and knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and in all that He has accomplished for us. So we'll look now then at that faith is faith in what has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. Hand in hand with the realization that faith is knowledge and conviction about what the Scriptures say about our Lord Jesus Christ, it's also a firm confidence. That's what the Catechism teaches. A deep-rooted assurance in what He has done. As Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, He's telling them that their assurance is rooted in what Christ has done. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith, he says. If Christ has not been raised, your faith faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Your faith is based on what Christ has done. Paul's point is that the Corinthians have deep assurance, even in the face of death. Assurance rooted in the reality of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. Here's the critical point. Faith unites us to all that Christ has done for us. Without faith, all that Christ did while on this earth in His incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension has no value to us. It remains outside of us. We're not united with us. It's not appropriated to us. Only by faith are we engrafted into Christ and receive all the blessings that He's secured for us. Faith unites us to Christ. That's what the Catechism is talking about with that beautiful and that very biblical metaphor of grafting, ingrafting. Grafting, in case you don't know, takes place in the fruit tree and in the vine world. When you engraft a branch, say, onto a grapevine, you cut a notch in the main vine, and then you cut an opposite but similar shape onto a, another branch, and you take that branch and you stick it into the notch on the main vine and then tape them all up together. And the result is that the branch, which was formerly cut off and would have died if left in the state that it was, becomes united to that life-giving vine and receives all the nutrients that it needs for life. And it really does become united. It becomes one with that vine. As it grows, it gets fused together so that it becomes a part of the vine. And all the nutrients from that vine, all the things that that branch needs to live, 
comes from that main vine. The point is that the twig receives life from the vine when it's engrafted. In terms of God's great work, we are that branch, that twig. And we receive the life from Jesus Christ. We receive salvation. And not salvation in the narrow sense, salvation in the broad sense. All the blessings that Jesus Christ has secured by what He's done flow to the believer who is united to Him by faith. This is essentially what the New Testament authors are talking about when they repeatedly speak about the believers being in Christ. It means that we're united with Him. We become one with Him. We're united to Him by the Holy Spirit through faith. We should remember, of course, that faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not as though faith itself saves us. Not at all. What the Bible clearly teaches is that God is the God of salvation. God saves. God takes the initiative. Thus, faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us faith so that we might be able to draw on the blessings of Christ. So, what is included with this union with Christ? What do we receive just like a branch by faith in Christ? Well, so much. We receive justification by faith alone. The great pearl of the Reformation. His righteousness is ours because we are united with Him. We receive sanctification by faith alone. This too is a gift of our union with Christ. We need to note that. Sometimes sanctification is is talked about or sometimes we think about it as if it's what comes after God has done. God saves us, now we have to get to work and start doing good works and please God by them. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Sanctification is a gift of God. It's the work of Jesus Christ that we receive by faith. Paul teaches in Ephesians 2 that we have been created in Christ to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's a gift of God. So justification, sanctification, also glorification by faith alone. This is the climax of our faith life when we will finally and completely be united with Christ and will completely reflect His glory. And not only that, but also the inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth. talked about that briefly this morning. Are ours by faith in Christ. Eternal life. Ours by faith in Christ. Forgiveness of sins. Ours by faith in Christ. As one person said it, by union with the exalted Christ, all that He is now by virtue of being having been crucified and raised is mine. All that He has done, all that He is, all that He has accomplished, all that He has won in God's sight is yours by faith in Him. All that Christ is, I am. All that Christ has done, He has done for you. That's what we grasp hold of by faith. 
That's what you rest in by faith. Faith isn't a vain seeking after something, a trying to convince you something, yourself of something that seems hard to believe. No, it's accepting and resting in the reality that Jesus Christ has accomplished all for you in His life, death, and resurrection. That's why the catechism settles on that word firm confidence. Or you could also say deep-rooted assurance. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, says Hebrews 11. That assurance factor is a huge factor of faith. And it's one that we should never let go of. It is, in fact, what the church of the Middle Ages had largely lost. Before the Reformation, faith was understood as merely an assent, uh, an agreement to something that was true. So faith was seen as affirming what the Bible taught, but they did not believe that you could find assurance in necessarily in what was taught. It remained abstract and objective. It remained outside of you. It wasn't real. It wasn't necessarily for you and subjective. In other words, you could affirm all that Christ had done. Yes, I believe that He lived, died, was raised, and ascended into heaven. But you couldn't be sure that He did it for you. While the Reformers went back to the Scriptures, and they realized that that was not true. That was a harmful and an unbiblical teaching. In fact, it robs faith of its essential character. Faith is assurance of the reality and the power and the appropriateness and the sufficiency of all that Christ has done for you. That's what faith is. When you trust in Him, you trust that He has done that for you and for all those who believe in Him. What I mean is this. In our doubts and weaknesses, we can and we often do ask ourselves, how can I know that God loves me? How can I know that God is going to accept me? How, how do I know for sure that I'm, I'm actually going to be saved? Well, the answer that faith gives us is because Christ is loved by God. Because Christ has taken away the wrath of God from you. Because Christ has done all that is necessary for your salvation when you believe in Him. That's the answer that faith gives to us. Faith is also, thirdly, faith in what has been promised in Christ. Faith grasps, the Catechism says, all that is promised us in the Gospel, says that in question and answer 22. And this is totally in line with those famous words that begin Hebrews 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the certainty of things not seen. Faith, brothers and sisters, is exactly that. It's, it's faith. It's not sight. You can't see these things. You can't necessarily grasp them with your hand. We live by faith, not by sight, the Apostle Paul says. 
Faith is firm confidence in the work of Jesus Christ already accomplished for us, but it at the same time realizes that this work is ongoing and that it, it hasn't reached its final fulfillment. Faith rests in what Christ has done in the past, but it also trusts in what Christ is going to do for us in the future. We live in what has been called the already and the not yet. We live in the tension between what Christ has done and what He finally will accomplish on the last day. That is, we're already justified and declared righteous in God's sight. But yet we don't enjoy the full blessings of that status yet. We will on the last day. We are already declared holy in Christ. But yet we don't have all the sin purged out of our lives yet. We already have the assurance of eternal life, but we don't yet taste the blessedness of that life together with God. We already have forgiveness of sins, but we don't yet have total freedom from our sins. They still weigh us down. We live in the already and the not yet, knowing Uh, Faith is grounded in the promises of what God will do. And knowing that faith is grounded in the promise of God, it allows us to face up to the reality of sin in this world. Faith realizes that sin is a reality. It doesn't ignore it or it doesn't act like it's not there, but in the middle of pain and suffering and temptation caused by sins, it clings to the promises of God. That there is going to be finally a decisive end to sin. And faith even equips us to avoid sin in this life. That's one aspect of our home visit text for this, this year. About keeping our heart and our mind fixed on heavenly things, not on earthly things. Focus your faith in the sure, rock-solid promises of God in Christ. And those short-term pleasures and distractions of this sinful world will fade away. Let's think about that for a moment. Is it not true that we're most susceptible to temptations when, when we lose sight of God's promises? God promises the most enjoyment in Him when we live in Him. And it's when we forget that, that we look to find enjoyment in other things. For example, in the consumption of alcohol. Or God promises to give us strength that we need in temptation. That's God's promise. But we give in to temptations when we feel like we're too weak to resist. We give in to the the temptation, for example, to lust when we feel like we're too weak to resist that desire. God promises that sin will hurt and harm our relationships, and it will divide the body of Christ. Well, we give in to that temptation to gossip and to slander when we don't heed that warning, indeed that promise of God. Faith looks to the promises of Jesus Christ, and it clings to the promise of forgiveness whenever we do lose sight of God, and we sin against Him. And it looks to find its strength and power from God 
in the face of those temptations. By faith we hold fast to the promises of God, to all that's promised us in the Holy Gospel. As summarized, we learn in the articles of the Apostles' Creed. Now, wait a minute. Let's think about this one for a moment. We sang the Apostles' Creed earlier in the service. And it says here, all that is promised in the Apostles' Creed. Do you remember when you were singing the Apostles' Creed, hearing promises? said, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. Do these sound like promises to you? They, they sound to me more like facts, more like things that are. Well, that's the certainty of God's promises for us in Jesus Christ. They're as sure as facts. That's exactly the point of faith in Jesus Christ. That these things are sure and true because of what Christ has done for us. I believe in God the Father. God promises to be my Father for the sake of Christ His Son. Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, God promises to turn all adversity in this life of sorrow to my good. I believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord. God promises to rescue me from the power of Satan, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. God promises that He hears me and that He understands me in my struggle against sin, who was crucified, dead, and buried. God promises to cast my sins away from me as far as the east is from the west, and so on. Well, that's just a a sneak peek at all the promises that we embrace in our confession of the Apostles' Creed and all the articles there. And that's what we will, the Lord willing, be able to look at in more detail in the coming weeks and months. By faith, we embrace the promises of God which because of His faithfulness and His unchangeableness and His great power are as real as the book that I hold in my hand that contains them all. Ultimately, faith, true faith, is faith in Jesus Christ. We're saved by faith in Christ alone. And He was revealed as our salvation. He's accomplished all that was necessary for it, and He sustains us in the promise of its completion. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.